Welcome to the 340B Insider Podcast by RX Strategies. In this episode, 340B Insights, the current state of the 340B program, RX Strategies, Jonathan Genn and Rody Smith connect with Ted Splasky, publisher and CEO of the 340B Report. Let's listen in. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. My name is Jonathan Genn. I'm the Senior Vice President of Sales and Marketing for RX Strategies. I'm joined by Rody Smith, who is our VP of Contract Pharmacy Sales. Also joining us today is Ted Slavsky from 340B Report, which is an amazing 340B publication that everyone listening to today should check out if you're not already a subscriber. Welcome, Ted. Thanks so much. Appreciate the plug there, Jonathan. Uh, Ted, for those listening who aren't familiar, why don't you give us some background on your origins in 340B and how you've contributed to the space over the years? Sure, sure. I was involved in uh, 340B when you were uh, were still wearing diapers, Jonathan. Um, <laughs> it's been a few years. Uh, started in 1996. Um, I had just graduated from Duke University from the graduate program there in public policy with a master's in public policy. I began my career as a journalist um, working at U.S. News and World Report after college. Uh, really enjoyed uh, journalism, but decided I was particularly interested in healthcare policy, um, maybe because my father was a surgeon, my mother was in communications. It was a nice mix of, of their two skill sets and um, was uh, fortunate enough to get hired by um, uh, a young uh, attorney at the time named Bill Von Osen, who had just created a coalition of hospitals that were enrolled in the 340B program. Bill, who's still involved with the 340B program today, um, was uh, looking for someone to help run the day-to-day operations of a fledgling uh, association of hospitals that were um, starting to enroll in 340B and trying to understand how it worked. And I was very excited about this opportunity because it was a mission-focused opportunity. I'm really proud of the work that hospitals and other Providers in the 340B program play in expanding access to um, affordable pharmaceuticals to more patients, and it's uh, a great program. And it's become my uh, basically my go-to information. My go-to job is to be thinking about 340B, and uh, I care about it deeply. All right. Well, why don't we uh, talk about some of those early days of 340B and how things were were different, uh, how things have remained the same, and kind of bring us up to uh, current state of, of 340B, where we're facing some some new issues in the form of uh, manufacturer blocks. Sure. Uh, back in the days when uh, Rody and I were first involved in 340B, it was a fairly small program. Um, there were less hospitals in the program, less community health centers, um, not as much in the contract pharmacy space as there is now. Um, and so we were in, uh, we were not uh, the center of attention on Capitol Hill. Um, and uh, it, so it was a different time. Uh, the program was much smaller than there was uh, generally these relationships with um, that healthcare providers had with contract pharmacies that would be retail pharmacies or mom and pop uh, pharmacies were uh, fairly. Uh, small, uh, usually uh, maybe one institution 
and one pharmacy uh, rather than the long, uh, the larger network of pharmacies that occurred in 2010, which um, uh, which really has uh, increased attention to the program, as well as the expansion of the program in 2010 to uh, hundreds of rural hospitals um, that really depend on 340B. So I'd say 2010 was a is an inflection point. Would you would you agree there, Rody? Uh, things were a little quieter and not uh, as crazy as they are now. Yeah, and that's and that's exactly what I see. You know, over the 20 years going, I want to know where. And maybe this is maybe another question that I would love to pose to you. Where do you think, looking back, if we go back to your example, 2010, 2011, something happened. Something happened to where we are today. Was that because you think maybe um, some of the hospitals, and again, the expansion of this program just become so large. Uh, contract pharmacy expansions, big box retailers came into play. Do you think the change of what we see today compared to 2010, 2011, do you think we did something wrong in the industry? Did we just push patient information to the brink? Or do you think we became too large in this space, meaning too many covered entities, too many pharmacies? I would love to see, get that opinion from you because it's, it's a good point, you know, what happened? Yeah, no, that's a good point. I really do think that 2010 was really the the breaking point when it came to attention to 340B. Mm-hmm. Um, the expansion to, to uh, multiple contract pharmacies, which was envisioned by Congress, it was actually going to be part of the Affordable Care Act, but um, HRSA decided to issue guidance that would allow for multiple contract pharmacy use. Um, and there was no need to include it in the Affordable Care Act, so it was taken out of the bill. Um, yeah. Did um, it certainly did expand the use of the program? I think largely to the better, um, as you know, Rody, you're you and, and Jonathan are helping uh, providers expand access to care. But I think the the critically important thing is to make sure patients are being able to afford their medications, um, regardless of whether they go to the pharmacy. Um, at the chain or whether they have to go uh, back to um, the site of uh, the original site where the prescription was written. And I, I do think that that's one area where um, more transparency would be better um, because I do think that it's not easy, as you know, Rody, to implement um, these uh, discount programs on site but it's really vital. And I know ARC Strategies has done some good work in that area. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that and why it's important to continue that mission. Yeah, and again, that's the good point. You know, when the FQHCs came into space, um, they had to comply with their 330 grants to look after the uninsured patients and vulnerable patients. Because again, some of these FQHCs are so small, they don't have an in-house pharmacy. So we had to incorporate a plan so patients can actually leave the covered entity and go and get drugs at the retail pharmacy at acquisition cost, at 340B acquisition cost. So I see now with the manufacturers blocking those NDCs, some of these patients cannot get their drugs. So it's becoming a massive, massive issues with those vulnerable patient population. And that's a good point as well. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, Jonathan, if you want to add anything, but I know that... Uh... Many, uh, I would think probably all of your your uh, clients are doing what they can to make sure that their patients get access to 
prescription drugs at an affordable price. And, and it's just uh, the underscores the importance of making sure that those programs are in place to help uh, our most vulnerable patient populations. Agreed. And we do get a lot of questions uh, specifically around blocks from covered entities of all kinds. Um, it, it's definitely the most critical issue out there in the space right now, because as you both indicate, uh, it creates a lot of headaches and, and problems in terms of patients uh, being able to get their, their drugs. So one of the questions we get consistently um, from those covered entities who are affected uh, is, is should they utilize uh, ESP um, to, to do reporting on, on those relationships and those transactions? Uh, so Ted, we, we'd love to hear your thoughts around that line of questioning. Sure, yeah, just to expand on what's been going on for those who are not that familiar with the program. Um, over the last few years, the pharmaceutical industry has placed restrictions on access to 340B pricing in the contract pharmacy setting so that it is uh, much more difficult to get access to discounts um, with your uh, retail partners. And that has been highly problematic for patients and for uh, these covered entities that depend on the savings from those relationships in order to provide care to all patients, regardless of ability to pay. Um, and so um, there've been several um, court cases, uh, basically, the government has told the manufacturers that have placed these restrictions that what they're doing is illegal. Um, and the drug industry has argued that, no, what we're doing is uh, is acceptable because the 340B law is not clear on whether there really is a contract pharmacy program. And so those are being debated in the federal court system throughout the country. There are three main cases right now. They're all at the federal appellate level in different parts of the country. And um, we're awaiting two more decisions in those cases, uh, which should occur sometime soon. And that will help us figure out um, whether uh, there's going to be a requirement to provide these discounts at the contract pharmacy level or whether they're going to need to be changes. As for 340B ESP, um, that is something, um, basically, it's an opportunity that I think about 13 of the drug manufacturers have uh, said, listen, we will offer you 340B pricing and continue to offer you 340B pricing um, at these contract pharmacies if you provide some fairly significant claims data about your patients to us. And that has been a dilemma for many providers in the 340B program. Uh, because they uh, desperately need access to the discounts, but they're afraid that this data that they're going to share could be used um, in a way that could undermine the intent of the program. For instance, there's always a chance that that information could be shared with the, um, with the insurers um, and the PBMs, and that could potentially result in um, reimbursement cuts. And uh, I know that the providers in the 340B program are always worried about efforts by uh, uh, PBMs and other, um, other payers to ratchet down reimbursement to 340B providers. So it's a tough decision. I think more and more of the providers are deciding that they have to work with ESP, which is a third-party vendor um, that is uh, basically a client of the pharmaceutical manufacturers, and they serve as a um, 
basically as a uh, clearinghouse to either uh, turn on the discounts again or to keep them on hold. Um, and I know their job is not easy being uh, that all the manufacturers have their own policies and, and all of them have different policies. But um, I think um, you guys would know better than me, but I'm getting the sense that certainly from the hospitals, more and more of them are deciding that they have to participate in the ESP. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think based on my experience <laughs> is that, you know, we have to follow rules set forth by our client, the covenant entity. Um, you know, I think to your point as well, they are forcing some of our DISH hospitals as a massive percentage of Medicare and Medicaid patients to use ESP. And if they don't do it, they can't get the savings. So even if they do not want to participate in 34B ESP, they feel that they have to. Because again, 60% 60 of the revenue goes away if they don't do ESP. And then that's the first, first section of it. The second section, I think, of ESP is that there's so many people in the industry that we speak to as well, Ted, you, uh, and Jonathan, that they are scared for us to create a precedent. You know, this is not policy uh, from the federal level to say, hey, you have to use ESP. But the drug companies are now forcing covered entities to use 340 ESP. And if we do this, are we now creating precedent? And again, that a small percentage of, of, of covered entities are doing ESP. But if we get to a 60, 70%, 80% utilization, doesn't that give enough to the drug manufacturers to say, by the way, look, all of them are doing it. So why complain? So I think that's an issue maybe today that you think if we get there, do you think that can cause an issue? If again, regardless of the what they're going to do with the information, but you think in the long term, if most of our clients or covered entities are using ESP, are we, will we start creating precedent? Uh, that that is possible. I mean, that's that's a big question, and 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 there are there is a solution to this issue. It's actually contemplated in a bill that was um, introduced in the last Congress and will likely be introduced in this Congress. It's called the 340B Protect Act. It had over a hundred sponsors uh, from both uh, um, House uh, Democrats and House Republicans. And it would basically, part of it would be to um, allow for the federal government to create a neutral clearinghouse to try to uh, basically identify uh, situations where a pharmaceutical manufacturer may be vulnerable to both a upfront discount through the 340B program and then a uh, back end rebate that they have to give to the Medicaid program. And so the challenge with the current system is that it's a vendor of the drug industry. And so there's not a lot of trust among the providers, um, whether that information is going to be utilized um, in, in a positive way. And so uh, I do think that there are the drug industry does have a legitimate right to not want to have to provide a discount up front and then provide another one to the Medicaid program when they're intended to just provide one discount. Um, but on the other hand, there needs to be a system in place that would be um, fair to all parties. So, Ted, you mentioned that there was, uh, you know, that, that these issues were kind of being debated across uh, certain courts. Um, where do you think the end game is here? Where do you think this is going? And, and uh, what do you think the timing is on, on resolution? Yeah, well, um, we have... Um, 
one federal appeals court decision, and that was in Philadelphia, and that one was largely in favor of the drug industry, saying that there is no obligation to provide discounts to an unlimited number of contract pharmacies. Um, however, there are two more decisions that we're waiting to hear from, one from Chicago and another one from uh, the District of Columbia, where I'm located. Um, and we're going to expect to hear those decisions shortly. Um, those could be appealed to uh, the full um, appeals court. Right now, this is just three um, uh, judges on the appeals court. And those often are, uh, there are efforts to try to get the full appeals court to look at the issue. Um, and then, of course, if there are mixed decisions at the appeals court level, then that could go to the U.S. Supreme Court. That um, The U.S. Supreme Court has not been shy to take on the 340B program. They've actually um, have addressed uh, a few different issues related to 340B over the last uh, 10 years or so, with the most recent being a victory for the hospitals in the program when it comes to uh, cuts from uh, CMS, uh, significant Medicare Part B cuts. Um, and uh, that uh, that just uh, basically that was a decision in June of 2022. Um, now, this can take a while. Um, it could be uh, something that potentially the Supreme Court could take up next year, could also drag on to the year after. So I'm envisioning uh, perhaps a, um, a legislative fix prior to. Uh, 2024. Um, I'm just thinking that the level of frustration is going to grow. I think the number of manufacturers who are likely to um, impose these restrictions will continue to grow, and there will be a groundswell of, of interest in getting this resolved, clarified um, uh, through Congress. I can't guarantee that, but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, and I agree there, Ted. You know, we're going to have different jurisdictions with different conclusions of the 340B program. We know what happened in Pennsylvania. We, we don't know what's going to happen in Chicago, Illinois, or then in D.C. And if it's multiple decisions, um, we know it's going to land up in the Supreme Court. You know, if I have a, a, a magic wand, I think we are going to get to, um, we are going to the higher appeal court of the country. So that's it. Do you think um, we need to have some more pressure on Congress? Because again, it can be maybe 2025 until it goes to the higher court of the land. Or do you think Congress need to be involved as soon as possible? Or what do you see Congress need to do to change this behavior very, very quickly? Yeah, I mean, now that I'm a pundit and no longer a trade, <laughs> associ trade association executive, I've been writing columns and, and making it clear over the last few years that I think that um, there really needs to be a resolution by Congress. Um, I just feel like uh, in as you read over the court decisions, I know, Rhoda, you're a lawyer by trade. You've seen that the judges say, really, Congress did not um, provide a lot of clarity when it comes to the contract pharmacy program. And Congress, it would be good for you to provide um, more details about the scope of the program. And I certainly don't think that the contract pharmacy program should go away um, and that there should be multiple contract pharmacies, but perhaps there'll be some limits on it um, because you have to compromise. Um, but I do think that uh, there will be just more and more interest in getting this resolved because 
There's also a possibility, Rody and, and Jonathan, that the Supreme Court doesn't take up the case. And that brings even more confusion. So it is, uh, I think that it would be helpful to try to get a resolution um, through Congress. I do think there needs to be some clarification of the rules around contract pharmacy. And, um, uh, you know, that would be my expectation, although there has been differences of opinions between provider organizations on whether to get Congress involved. And I don't know whether that will get resolved, um, but I do think that there's going to be more and more interest and momentum towards a resolution. Yeah. Ted, how can the folks listening get involved in that advocacy? Well, there are many very good uh, trade groups and advocacy organizations, both national organizations that represent hospitals, represent Ryan White clinics, represent community health centers. Uh, there are also some really good state uh, organizations, uh, primary care associations, um, state hospital associations, uh, as well as pharmacist organizations. And, and I think that uh, the key is to stay engaged um, and be involved. Um, 340B report, of course, is a great way to stay on top of the news and uh, get the intelligence about the program. Uh, but now that I'm a, more of a journalist and less of an advocate, um, you know, I it, it's going to really depend on the work of advocates throughout this country. And I know Rody and and Jonathan, you guys work very closely with some of those advocacy groups. So. Yeah, and, and again, um, just want to say this as well. Uh, we've been mentioning this before. I love the 340B report. It gives me a lot of insights, especially um, updates on a daily basis of what's happening. So again, thank you for that advocacy there. But going back, I mean, I know that you were involved with Snapper. We love Snapper. Um, of course, for people that don't know what Snapper was, what it was Safety Net, Hospital for Pharmaceutical Access, way, way back. And I think now- Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's quite a mouthful. Um, <laughs> yeah. Somehow we came up with the name of Safety Net Hospitals for Pharmaceutical Access and no one could ever fit, remember the name of it. And then we came up with something even crazier called SNAPA. Um, but yeah, that was the precursor to uh, 340B Health. Yes. Perfect. And you did a great job there. And of course, you're doing a great job with 340B Report. I know there's different advocacy groups out there, you know, and I said this to you maybe uh, a few times. You know, I belong to a lot of groups, chatters out there, you know. Do you think we need a more aggressive advocacy group out there other than we currently are using? Do you think it will help or do you think we just dilute the water even more? Uh, I would love to hear your opinion there. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the key is that those who are members of organizations need to speak up and they need to get involved. Um, and that can be everything from going to lobby days, uh, which is critically important um, to meet your lawmakers, um, and uh, trying to join various governance bodies, whether that's the board of directors of or associations or organizations. The more you're involved and the more that you're, um, you know, really trying to uh, make change, but make positive change, um, the more you'll be heard. Um, and so, I, I mean, I, I think that's uh, up to others about sort of where we are with whether the current associations are, are, are doing what they need to do and, um, or whether there needs to be new ones. But I do think that the key is just being active and involved and, um, and making that point, both um, 
at, at home um, with your local members of Congress and state representatives, but also uh, going and, and coming to the lobby days that various trade groups host, um, because I think those are very effective and are um, uh, uh, create momentum and create actual uh, significant results. Because when you meet with your lawmakers and you meet with them regularly, they become more and more dependent on your expertise. All right. Well, to uh, to close this out, I really appreciate Ted joining. Uh, thanks, Rody, for uh, for your 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 great questions. Uh, I want to make sure to to plug uh, 340B Report. You can access 340B Report at www.340breport.com. It's uh, I think pretty much daily publication um, that really has a lot of insightful information that's all 340B specific and definitely encourage everybody listening to check that out. Um, if you're interested in RX Strategies, our website is rxstrategies.com. And uh, thanks for all the, thanks for everybody listening. We look forward to uh, catching you next time. Anything to, any closing statements from the group? I mean, I just wanted to thank RX Strategies. They've been a long time sponsor of 340B Report. When I was starting this uh, news publication, uh, in uh, January of 2020, uh, I had a couple of uh, nice organizations that were willing to get our first issues and review the the issues, make sure we were covering the right topics and, and all of that. And Arc Strategies was one of the groups that uh, has been a sponsor from day one. And your support um, of 340B Report and your support of the 340B providers throughout the country are critically important and and we appreciate you being a partner of ours. Um, it really means a difference. Likewise. Thanks, Ted. We appreciate uh, all the help over the years and uh, look forward to, to many more. Thank you. And Rody, I look forward to continuing to uh, contact you um, regularly for your opinion and thoughts. Uh, you, you and Jonathan and the rest of the team are really important uh, resources to our news organization and to the 340B community. Likewise, likewise, Ted. Thank you for your time. Thank you, John, Rody, and Ted for sharing this insider information on what's important to covered entities and pharmacy professionals who manage a 340B program and provide the best care possible to those they serve. Listeners, don't forget to visit 340binsider.com to view resources, show notes, and access more 340B Insider podcast episodes. You can also subscribe and listen to our podcast on your favorite app. Until next time, thank you for listening.